I'm Professor Lucy Rogers, the inventor with a sense of fun. I've judged fighting machines on Robot Wars, written a book on rocket science, and even performed stand-up comedy. But now, I have a new challenge. DesignSpark want me to find out how everyday tech is helping people and places do extraordinary things. From saving bees to unlocking a sixth sense, just how are they giving themselves the engineering edge? I'm out walking my dog Enki. She's a, a 12 year old black Labrador. And uh, because, <laughs> because she's getting older, she's just picked up a huge log. That's a tree, Enks, not a stick. Do you want a small stick? She's 12 years old now, so she's, she's gone a bit deaf. And so I've put bells on her collar so I can hear where she is because she's not coming when she's called. And she's also a lot slower than she used to be. Come on. Come on, black dog. Good girl. Good girl. Go on then. Ah, oh, that's my phone. That's Tiffany, my producer. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Lucy. Enjoying your walk? Yeah, I'm out with Enks. She's a bit slower than she used to be. It's more of an amble. You only know that, though, because you see her every day. Say if you were working in animal conservation, you couldn't walk each anteater every day to see how fast they were. <laughs> An anteater? I bet there's tech that they could use for that. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I've heard that some wildlife experts are using everyday tech to do exactly that. And I'm not just talking about GPS. So I need you to track them down and figure out what the story is. I'm on it. I think using everyday tech to track my dog Enki's movements could be a lot of fun. But I want to know how this is being used in wildlife conservation. So I've tracked down biologist Dr. Danielle Brown at Middle Tennessee State University. She's been using accelerometers to do some of that important wildlife research. So I'm giving her a ring now. Hi, Danielle. Hi. I've read one of your papers. I'm absolutely fascinated by your work. So thank you ever so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So what research have you done with accelerometers and wildlife? So the main species that I worked with was uh, the tamandua anteater. So it's about a cat-sized animal, long tail that's prehensile, so it acts like an extra leg. Okay, yeah. long, skinny nose. And... (laughs) They are, uh, they are animals that live in tropical forests. They also live mm-hmm. in savannas, but they live in tropical forests. And so they're particularly hard to watch and study. And they're fairly cryptic. That just means it's, it's hard to see them. And they're quiet animals. They don't make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And so people have tried to study them. People were able to study them. Even in, as early as the 1960s, people went out with radio trackers and sort of watched them for a while. But what I did was put accelerometers on them, and it meant that you could actually record their movements. So an acceleration is just change in speed over time, right? And you could record their movements, and their movements really do correspond to their behaviors. 
but you don't have to be standing there the whole time. So you can record the movements, record their behavior, even when they disappear behind the tree canopy, which is what happened most of the time because they live in a tropical forest. So from the accelerometer, you can tell if they're running or if they're rooting about or if they're having a snooze. You can, so and they do snooze a lot. So about three quarters <laughs> of the time they were sleeping. Um, the output that you get from an acceleration telemeter is a squiggly line. And the, the squiggly line looks different. You can imagine it would be a flatter line if they're not really moving much, if they're just sort of laying <laughs> still. And it'll be a, a very jerky line, a very um, squiggly, squiggly line, if they are running or um, f- uh, arguing, fighting with another animal or um, right, yeah. digging around in the ground or digging around in a termite nest. So it's, it's a bit like reading music, I suppose, that it's you know, a, it, certain things represent certain things. It is a lot like reading music. And in fact, the way that people analyze sound is a lot of the same ways that we use uh, to analyze ah. these acceleration waveforms. That's right. So why do we need to know what this baby anteater or the small anteaters are doing? Well, anteaters, you know, they're kind of a weird uh, group of animals. And so I would say it's not so important that you know every behavior of every animal at all times. But in general, when we talk about animal behavior, it's one of the few things that animals can often adjust directly during their lifetimes in response to changes in their environment, right? So the way that they uh, that they behave is a reflection of both their internal needs, you know, do they need to sleep? Do they need to eat? But then also... Are they being stressed by factors in the environment, predators or changes in food supply? And so you can get an idea of how they're responding to changes in their environment by understanding how they're behaving in different contexts. And the tricky thing about wild animals is that, of course, we don't always know how they're behaving because they're hard to watch all the time. If you think about an animal that spends most of its life under the water, we just can't follow them there, right? So having a a tool that we can use remotely. We don't have to have our eyes on the animal the whole time. Instead, we can use this telemeter, this remote measurement tool to get an idea of what their behaviors are. And then that allows us to make predictions about how their behavior is going to continue to change in response to changes in the environment. And sometimes those changes are things like changes in food supply, right? That we've directly caused. Sometimes it's changes in habitat. Maybe we've removed the availability of of resting spaces. And so animals have to travel farther each day in order to get to and from where they eat and where they rest. So measuring their behavior is the first step to understanding their behavior. And understanding their behavior is a way that helps us make predictions about how long those, those animals and those populations can persist going into the future as the environment's changing. Ah, so we can actually work out that this, this, animal in this location is going to be threatened because we're building a road, building a dam, um, logging. Right, right. If we know what the, what the sort of expected set of behaviors are, then we know what the behaviors are, when their behaviors are changing, right? And we know whether that's going to be problematic. So to be more specific, um, a lot of researchers have used accelerometers to measure foraging effort, right? Foraging effort, meaning how much time and energy they're having to put in to get enough calories for the day, right? Mm -hmm. And if you compare animals that are living in one habitat versus another, you can identify whether some individuals are having to spend more time and energy to acquire the same amount of calories than they would if they were living in a different habitat, maybe where humans are less, you know, influenced. 
Um, and so you can, you can get an idea that, hey, this population over here is having to put in way more energy than the calories that they normally get out of a day. And so that means that over time, that's probably not the best environment. That population probably won't last very long there if those mm-hmm. animals are consistently having to work harder to find the same amount of food. Why are we worried about these animals, though? Well, it just depends on the species. So in some cases, uh, you know, you have very sensitive species that we really want to protect from uh, from extinction. Um, in the case of anteaters, you know, the Tamandua anteater, actually, of, of the anteater species, there are four different species, um, and, and Tamanduas are just one of the four, they're actually doing the best. Uh, they are sort of a smaller anteater than the giant anteater. The giant anteater is uh, German shepherd-sized, right? So it's, it's <laughs> right. a large mammal. Uh, it's often hit, uh, it's often the, the, the victim of, of roadside uh, road collisions with cars. Um, mm-hmm. There are animals that are that are very sensitive and then some that are less sensitive. In the case of the tamandua and anteaters in general, they're a weird group of species, but they're a species, they're a set of species that uh, evolved relatively early in mammalian history. So they are a, so almost like a leftover, a relic of an earlier time. And what's interesting about animals like that is that they uh, can inform us, they can tell us about our own evolutionary trajectory, our own species trajectory, Uh. because they are some of the last species that are remaining from a much earlier time during a mammalian evolutionary history. How do you actually put these on? Uh, (laughs) So tamanduas, um, they are relatively slow moving until you try to catch them. My field advisor, Roland Kays, uh, he asked me when I when he sort of recruited me to start working on this project, he said, you know, have you ever caught pigs? Have you ever chased and caught pigs? And I was like, no, you know, I grew up in the city. That's that's not something I ever had to do. And he said, well, it's it's a lot like that. So, you know, you're basically scrambling around uh, trying to catch this thing in the forest. And of course, it's much faster in the brambles than we would be, right? Uh, obviously, so, yeah. Uh, you know, it darts under a bush and you're stuck. Um, but, you know, we used catch poles. We used nets. We used. We tried to use uh, blow darts, and uh, that didn't work too well. And once you get a handle on one of these, um, you do need to anesthetize it temporarily um, so that you can glue this uh, this accelerometer um, onto its back. So, in the case of tamanduas and, and all anteaters, really, um, their neck and their head are the same size. So a collar oh, right. a collar won't work because it'll just sort of slide <laughs> just slip off. off. Uh-huh. Right. And so instead, I tried a harness. That also didn't work well. What worked the best in the end was using epoxy glue to basically glue it onto oh, wow. their backside, just in front of their <laughs> tail. And yeah. uh, that would stick for about two to three weeks, depending on the animal. You can glue it on. Some animals, you do need to put a little backpack on them. So the bats and uh, <laughs> birds, you know, you can put these little string backpacks on. Why have accelerometers come on so much? And how did you first think about using them? People knew really early. I mean, in the 1960s, people were using wired accelerometers to sort of do biomechanical studies of humans. And right, then, yep. uh, you know, by the 1980s, you know, the sort of uh, exercise physiologists were, were putting these things on people and having them walk around and measuring energy expenditure and that type of thing in people. And it was really, people were interested in doing this with animals, but they were still hamstrung by the fact that batteries were clunky and heavy and, you know, you can only put so much on an animal before it's going to do not really much at all, right? It's just going to be like, I'm not moving because something's not right. So uh, you really want a small device. 
And what really made the difference was the development of accelerometers for vehicle airbags. So that started really becoming... Car airbags. That's right. So an accelerometer in an airbag next to the airbag... Yeah, the sensor for, yeah. ...is what tells the car's computer, hey, you are about to have an accident, right? And it it signals that, that the airbag needs to deploy to prevent you from smashing into the steering wheel, right? So vehicle manufacturers came, you know, developed these low cost and also low battery consumption. That was really critical. Uh, uh, right, accelerometers yeah. that they use in airbags, and that that change was what made it feasible to consider using these accelerometers in wildlife studies. Wow. I'm, I'm just still gobsmacked. Yeah, that something from the car industry That's is right. actually helping... Yeah, environmental right. biological research. It really did take off from there. So you have now, I mean, more than, it's hundreds of species now, uh, everything from small animals like bats and chipmunks to, you know, really large animals, sharks, whale sharks and sunfish and all kinds of birds. In some cases, they can even be swallowed. So there are some accelerometers that they've uh. put inside the rumen, inside the digestive tract of animals yep. like, like antelope and uh, cows and things like that. And in that case, you, you have this thing that sort of sits in, in a spot in the digestive tract, in the rumen, and it just sits there for a while and, and takes a while for the animal to pass it. So during the days that it's collecting data, you can tell how, uh, how quickly or how often the animal's eating. You can tell their heartbeats in some cases with these accelerometers. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So you can get really detailed physiology as well as the sort of gross movement behavior. You know, are they walking? Are they sleeping? You know, they're not going to always do all the behaviors when someone's standing there, right? Oh, like, yeah, like, like my dog will only climb onto my bed when I'm not there. There and you I go. Only know she's, <laughs> I only know she's been there because the bed is covered in dog hair. How did there that you happen? go, yeah. So you put so, an accelerometer yeah. on your dog and you will be able to detect those movements of her moving up onto the bed. That's exactly right. <laughs> so you're doing anteaters and there's, there's birds... What's what's your favorite that other people are doing? What seems really cool to me are behaviors that we just couldn't have imagined were happening because we just weren't aware, right? We just never saw them. And I'll give you some examples. Mm. So there are these birds called oil birds. Uh, they're uh, like cormorants, okay? They're, they're uh, water birds. And they actually spend a lot of time roosting in caves. And so people didn't believe that they could be important in dispersing seeds, although they're fruit eaters in some cases, people didn't think that they could be important seed dispersers because they thought, well, yeah, they go and eat fruit in the forest, but then they go into this cave and they sit in the dark. And even if they get rid of the seed there, you know, they poop it out. uh, What happens is the seed is in the dark. So that's no good for the seed. So they're not important seed dispersers. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, you put accelerometers on them and it turns out that they do spend some time in caves, but they often feed in a tree and then go and sit, fly to another tree and sit in a different tree and release the seed there. And so they actually ah. do turn out to be important seed dispersers um, uh-huh. for tropical forests where previously nobody would have expected that, right? You know, in my own research, tamanduas were not believed to be able to swim. And I actually documented along with some other researchers the fact that they there was one that actually crossed the Panama Canal. And uh, wow. <laughs> the canal, you know, the canal, it's not long, it's not wide, right? In, in the place where this animal crossed was about 500 meters, but but still. That's still a fair distance. Yeah. yeah, swimming for a cat-sized animal, swimming across this very turbulent water because you have these huge tanker ships going back and forth um, is, is just something that, that, you know, people didn't really believe they were capable of. All of those really interesting things 
are interesting to me because I'm a behaviorist. <laughs> yeah. But they're also interesting for people who are trying to make predictions about how animals are going to persist into the future in different places around the world. And accelerometers are a huge part of that because it allows us to make really good predictions about behavior because we have really good documentation of behavior. I'm loving it all. I've just got all this picture of I now want to go and stick all these accelerometers onto everything, everything yes. I can see. <laughs> it is tempting. It is tempting. And, you know, there are a few species that I think are eluding uh, the accelerometer craze. I'm, tr- I'm thinking of like octopuses because their bodies are Ooh, soft. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. are such amazing animals, right? But I have yet to see an octopus accelerometer. And I think it's just because, you know, their bodies, they can squish their bodies into all kinds of crevices. And I don't know how you'd make a a hard accelerometer that didn't, yes. that didn't end up being, cr- you know, cracked off. <laughs> we, we do still have a ways to go, uh, but we've made really big strides uh, in the past 20 years using these 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 devices. That's been fascinating. Thanks ever so much for sharing all that with me, Danielle. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for your interest. No problem. Fascinating that we can know what these anteaters are doing when we're not watching them, whether they're climbing a tree, having a little snooze, or or even swimming across the Panama Canal. I would have never known that had it not been for just some everyday tech, an accelerometer. Now I'm off to see if I can unlock some secret behaviours of Enki. I've put together an accelerometer and some tech to monitor her, and I'm now going out to test it. Come on, Enks. First of all, I have to connect it to her and switch it on. Enks, Enks, come here. Good girl, come. Hear her bells. Now I just have to connect it to Enki's collar. And I'm just opening up my phone. If I have a look at the plotter, yes, I've got X, Y, and Z there as well. So I want to try a couple of things. Enki, Enki, wait. And she knows I've got biscuits in my pocket. So I'm going to walk a little bit further on. Enki, come. And here she comes, here she comes. Oh yeah, X and Y, or um, two of the plots. Oh, you're a good girl. You're a good girl. I'm gonna have to have a look at that data in a sec. Once I've given her, oh, nom, 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 some biscuits. Oh. Now that she's happy and had a couple of biscuits, I can go back and have a look at that data. So I can see clearly that the three plots that I've got, um, the X, Y, and Z axes, they were all stopped when she was just sitting there. Um, But then as soon as I told her to come, one of the axes goes way, way up and down. I can tell from that plot that she's running at me. I can tell there that she's just ambling towards me. And a little bit further on, yeah, because she's still wearing it and she's just following me around. She's just ambling and I can actually tell the difference between those plots. It's brilliant.
now that I have proved this is working and with every wag of Enki's tail I can see that the uh, the X, Y and Z is moving slightly. Let's start to see if we can walk. So I want to try a couple of scenarios. Oh wow, yeah! One of the axes has just jumped off. Oh, that's really impressive. So obviously the she's swaying slightly left to right and bouncing slightly up and down but definitely we're going let's go faster Inks let's go faster come on then come on then yeah you can see when she's slowing down and speeding up oh wow yes it's definitely just going straight over I love it I can tell when she's gone off to have a good sniff at something because everything sort of slows down and then when she catches up everything goes faster and the peaks go a lot higher um, and then it calms down again and slows down even with my very crude bit of tech on Enki's collar I can easily see the difference um, when she's running and when she's stopped and when she's sniffing about so to actually use these on animals out in the wild must be truly fascinating said that when the accelerometers were first used on wildlife, the tech was so large that they put in the collars that they could only put it on large mammals. Now I'm able to order the parts to get one small enough to put on my dog's collar. And biologists are using them on even smaller animals. I really want to know what is letting this technology get this small and lightweight and how biologists are using them to push the envelope of wildlife research. So I've reached out to Professor Rory Wilson at Swansea University and he's agreed to have a call with me. Hi Rory, thanks for talking with me today. Well, it's a pleasure. You've put accelerometers on animals. Which animals? How small have you gone? We put them on the largest fish in the sea, just to start at one end. Okay. And we put them on fish, we put them on mammals, we put them on birds. So we've had them on tropic birds, which is sort of hundred and a couple of hundred grams. Wow. So, yeah. How about insects? We've actually had them on accelerometers on cockroaches. All um, right. But they were so small, we couldn't put the complete logging system on. So we put the accelerometer on the, on the cockroaches, and then we had hair-thin wires connecting them um, to to a power source and actually to the memory. And uh, we were looking at how cockroaches walk according to the state of disease that they get. So they get a, a fungal disease, and, and this fungal disease affects them and takes, takes a few days before it actually completely does them in. But if you actually look at the accelerometer and, it, and, it, and, and the cockroaches run around, uh, you could see every single footstep. And they start to walk differently even on the first day after they've been infected. And you could see this by the accelerometer and there's no way you could, as a casual observer, that you could, you could figure that one out. So it's, it's great for, for even crazy stuff like that. These things must be absolutely tiny. They are tiny. I mean, the ones obviously in the cockroaches, they're all tiny, to be honest. They're sort of like two, two millimetres square with maybe two by two by one millimetre. Oh, a, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's smaller than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. that's, a, that's the triaxial accelerometer. So it measures acceleration in three axes. So uh -huh. very, very tiny thing. So what's helped technology get so small? Because before they used to, these accelerometers were just on big animals. 
They were indeed. And, and I'd like to send out a, a big thank you to everybody who uses a mobile phone. Oh, really? Uh, because, yeah, yeah, <laughs> because, well, it's, it's being uh, the miniaturization of tags for animals is being hugely driven by mobile phone technology because there are accelerometers in them, people who want to count their steps and stuff like that. It's not just in, in their watches, but also the memory, the very low power. No one wants to recharge the phone every hour. And so the industry is really pushing for all the sorts of things that animal biologists that use wild animals and tags on them to, to help us along. So how have you managed to adapt that, well, taking mobile phone apart? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, essentially, it's all the clever electronics in the mobile phone that you can buy as part of it. And then you just put it, you make your own circuit up and you make your own electronic boards and you have a dedicated piece of high tech, which you put on your crazy animal. Ah, it's a you're saying fish, so you make them waterproof. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, making them waterproof. And, of course, some of the fish, like the whale sharks, we, we put them on. They can go a mile underwater, so they need to not just be Oh, pressure as well. Yeah, hugely waterproof <laughs> and hugely pressure-proof. So part of it's obviously making the tag, but then making the tag itself in a housing that's going to withstand those sort of pressures, yeah. And how do you get the data back from those? Uh, well, there's a lot of praying involved. Um, you know when we set out to make our tags we were faced with the proposition of do you transmit some of the data the acceleration data or do you just record everything and if you transmit firstly there's a lot of animals where you just can't transmit that amount of data if you're a shark and you swim underwater and you disappear off to the mid-atlantic well good luck following that we decided we were going to get the highest quality data possible so we record typically 400 data points a second every second and we put them on the animals difficult animals like sharks we put them on for a prescribed period then we program them to pop off and they pop off hopefully somewhere not too far away from our boat and then they peep there you know where they are by via radio frequencies and then we rush around and try and find them so they must have little floats on them They've got a full of sharks, yeah, uh, floats on them. But I mean, uh, for some animals, I mean, even the, the non-marine animals, like one in our group has been putting them on condors. And, wow, yeah. And, you, you know, in Argentina, so you put a tag on a condor in Argentina one day, it might decide to go to Chile or Ecuador the next day. So, <laughs> so they're linked to a satellite tag and they pop off on the cliffs at night, at midnight. That's when they pop off and they go hurtling down and they transmit their position. And then some intrepid explorer goes out and, and hopefully finds them. What's been your favourite accelerometer story with wildlife? What's been my most surprising accelerometer, perhaps, is a good way of doing it. And I suppose surprising and, and favourite are quite close together. What I love about accelerometers and the, the other technology that goes with them, that we use with them, is, you know, you get the tag back from the animal and you open up your computer and it shows you all these lines of all these data and you can read this like a book. And it's an amazing book that's been written by an albatross or by a penguin or by a lion. Or and, you, and, you, and you can flick through the pages and no one's opened this book ever before. And so to answer your question, the most surprising thing was looking at the book written by a wandering albatross. And there were some really funny things happening. The acceleration data was showing that this albatross was on the water and that was kicking with the feet, was moving forward in pulses. Uh, and then periodically sort of not upending like a duck, but putting its head down um, and then bringing it back up again. And the water was splashing off its head and going on the temperature sensor and it was cooling off and blah, blah, blah. But the magnetometer in com combination with the magnetometer, which is giving you the heading, was showing that this this bird was actually going around in circles, just spinning around in crazy circles. And I, uh -huh. what? What's going on there? And then we looked at some more birds and it transpired that wandering albatrosses, which are 
or were, and they still are in many respects, an enigma because no one knew how they caught food. We know they eat squid. They eat a lot of squid. And one of the albatrosses, I don't want to... I don't want to um, diss them. I don't want to t- talk about them badly, <laughs> but they're sort of goose-like. And you don't expect them to be very athletic. And the big question was how they catch these big, highly mobile squid. And so it transpired that th- some of these birds, sometimes in the middle of the night, when it was completely dark, no moon, in some parts of the ocean, would would make these crazy circles. And uh, what we think is happening is in some parts of the ocean, the water is really productive and you get these these tiny animals in the, in the water, if you agitate them, they bioluminesce, they produce light. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what we think they're doing is they're somewhere around in the circles, they produce this beautiful ball of light. And the squid, being, being squid, say, oh, the light, it is beautiful. I must go <laughs> to the light. And they swim up from the depths and, and that's when they get nabbed. In fact, as we speak, I, I'm waiting for some results from Laysan's albatrosses, which are equipped with not just that technology, but stuff on their legs, which are measuring light, light intensity, to, so, so we can oh, see right. these balls. So you're actually light. proving yeah. it. So we're actually going to, the, going to the far ends of the earth to prove it. Amazing. What can't we study with accelerometers yet? One of the cool things about accelerometers is they're great by themselves, but they're even better with other sensors. One of the coolest things that I reckon about accelerometers is if you use them with magnetometers, and the magnetometers will tell you the heading mm-hmm. of the of your animal. The magnetometer, incidentally, will only tell you the heading if you've got an accelerometer in it, because the accelerometer says, this is the angle of your animal with respect to the Earth, and therefore uh, you can interpret. Oh, yeah, because if it's twisted or tilted, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but the really cool thing is if you put those two together, the accelerometer together with the magnetometer will say that badger has walked round that lamppost five times anticlockwise um, <laughs> before it decided to set market course. So it might or might not be relevant to you, but that's yep. a huge advance for, for understanding wildlife. Could you protect an uh, animal from being poached? Um, well, it's interesting you should ask that because we have actually been doing a project on on that and looking into the feasibility of it. I'm sure it will become almost mainstream. I'm absolutely sure of that. Um, we've started with a case with plowshare tortoises and, and they, they occur in Madagascar and um, they're critically endangered. And um, you might have thought you quite like tortoises, but the market value for a plowshare tortoise is like $50,000 for one. Wow. The interesting thing about that is that, and, and the difficult thing in, in the site where we've been looking at them is that you can put them back out in the wild and then for for local people who might make $25 a month, one of those given to someone else means they can build a palace and live and comfort the rest of their life. So it's a really difficult issue. And so what we've been looking at is putting accelerometers on them and whether the accelerometer could tell us when the tortoise is being poached. And a tortoise is a fairly easy animal because, you know, they just very slowly go in about their business and poacher picks them up. And you can have this very tiny system underneath them that then says, I, this is not what a tortoise normally does. I don't normally get picked up like this. Uh, and then, then immediately um, sends a text to a base station and everyone rushes out and apprehends the person. Uh, I really think for some of the, some of the big megafauna, some of the big charismatic animals as well, like rhinos, that rhinos that are being upset by potentially by poachers, they'll have typical types of behaviours. So mm-hmm. um, interrogating those behaviours and then sending a signal to, to poachers. Uh, may may really help in this regard. That's great. It's been great fun talking with you, Rory. Thanks ever so much. Well, thank you for the thank you for the questions. (laughs) 
I'm back out on another walk with Enki and I've put her accelerometer collar back on because who knows what kind of data I'm going to get from this and continue to learn. These, these accelerometers are such a game changer for wildlife research and conservation. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, I, I remember seeing you know, leopards and big cats being tracked with um, GPS on their collars. But being able to miniaturise all of that tech that can now be stuck on animals in the sea, or stuck on fish, stuck on sharks, whatever, and, and smaller mammals and reptiles. And it just opens up this whole world that, that we couldn't see before because I'm very aware that Enki gets up to stuff when I'm not watching that she wouldn't do when I am. So what all these other animals are going to do or get up to that we have no idea about. And it's just thanks to some everyday tech. Absolutely brilliant. I think my work here is done. It's time for an ice cream. The Engineering Edge was a Wider the Chicken production for Design Spark. It was hosted by Professor Lucy Rogers and produced by Tiffany Cassidy with Dan Page as the executive producer. Special thanks to our guests Danielle Brown and Rory Wilson. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please do three nice things for us. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes and tell a friend. For more episodes and bonus content, head to designspark.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>